welcome to For the Record the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of the music, politics, and culture of the 70s. This is Amy, your host for this one woman, one mic show. On today's episode, I'll take a look at the appeal of Southern rock from about 1970 to 1977. I'm going to offer some theories about what the Confederate flag had to do with any of it, and maybe... I'll help you take a page from one of the greatest backup singers to ever live, Mary Clayton, on reconciling any mixed feelings you might have about liking Sweet Home Alabama. I know for some folks are thinking, what is not to love? It's a great song. I know. It is a great song. And that was good enough for me when I was 12 years old and didn't know what the song was about. Now I'm grown up. I'm a historian, and I do know. And, well, it was hard for me to sing along to some of those lyrics. But Mary Clayton helped me with that. And if you're nodding your head and thinking, yeah, those lyrics, Mary and I are here to help. First, thank you for your support of this podcast. If you're new to the show, welcome. Of course, listening to the show is the best way to help. But if you want to do more, I ask that you just tell somebody else about it. Spreading the word can help like-minded people find the show. You can also go to the show's website at ftr70.com and click on any Patreon link. You can become a patron of For the Record the 70s for as little as $1 a month, which helps pay for equipment, subscriptions, books, website fees, things like that. Let's start with September 1969 and set the stage for what was happening in the southern part of the United States. In episode two... I did talk about the loss of regionalism and how the South was looking more like the rest of America and vice versa in the 70s. If you want more information about that, go check out episode two. Otherwise, just take my word for it and trust me when I say this was true. The mostly Canadian band, The Band, released the night they drove Old Dixie down in September 1969 when the South, as many people understood the South to be, was done. The lead vocals on that song were handled by the band's only American, the Arkansas native, Levon Helm. Levon Helm had this wonderfully gritty, gravelly voice that is perfect for this song. His voice reflects the pain of the lyrics, which are offered from the point of view of a defeated Southerner, white Southerner, as the Civil War at long last came to an end. In 1865, The South, as many understood it to be, since the United States was conceived, was also done. One hundred years later, as the United States was about to plunge into the 1970s, there were a lot of Virgil Keynes in the South. White guys looking around and wondering what was happening to their community or their town or their state. Virgil Keynes is the narrator of The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, And he surveys the destruction around him, and everything around him is a total loss. But he will, quote, keep working the land like his father did and like his brother would too if a Yankee had not killed him. Here's a bit of the night they drove Old Dixie down by the band with Levon Helm on lead vocals and drums. We were hung 
Dixie Down, you know, that's a song of pain. There were Virgil Keynes of the early 1970s who looked around and they also saw a South that they were starting to find unrecognizable. The landscape and how people lived were shifting. The low-hanging fruit here, of course, is to focus on race. We can't ignore it. In 1970, we were only six years out from the Civil Rights Act in the end of Jim Crow laws. Whether white Southerners like it or not, their past as one of the largest slave societies in world history, and as the former Confederacy of America, will likely never escape them, in part because some people don't want to escape it. Yes, race is part of the story. But it's not the only part of the story. All you had to do was look out the car window or maybe even just stand on your porch in the fall of 1969 and see that the literal landscape of the South was changing. Southerners were moving to the cities and you were far more likely to see a mall than a mule. In episode two, I talked about how the South was becoming more like the rest of America and the rest of America was becoming more like the South in the 1970s. So again, go back and check that out if you're not satisfied with me simply saying right now that these things were happening. If you go back and read newspaper articles about the band that were written around 1970 or 71, the writers did not seem to know how to describe them. This was also true of the Allman Brothers Band. In a survey of many articles from newspapers around the country, I read a lot of descriptions that said they played rock music but also kind of country and also kind of bluesy. Sidebar here, I thought it was really kind of quaint that newspapers gave so much space to articles about bands and albums and concert reviews. It's almost as if the music really mattered. Imagine that. Anyway, the music journalist Mark Kemp and the author of the excellent book Dixie Lullaby said that the term Southern rock is a marketing term, and I get that. It means different things to different people. Kemp grew up in the South, and he said that there is a lot of music that comes from the South, and that rock music that comes from the South is, quote, an otherworldly musical stew. Greg Allman said that saying Southern rock is like saying rock rock because rock and roll originated in the South, and I cannot argue with either one of these guys. For the sake of clarity, when I say Southern rock, I'm referring to the rock bands of the 70s, who used either literal or figurative images of some version of the Southern United States in their music and performances. After all, to me, the band has a lot of elements of Southern rock, and I'm not going to disqualify them from that because the only guy in the band that comes from the South is Levon Helm. The Southern rock movement of the 70s was rooted in nostalgia for a version of the South and of the past, patriarchal, agrarian, 
as the South was changing. Keep in mind that nostalgia and history are not the same thing. On the few occasions that I return to the small town in Nebraska where I grew up, I tend to feel more nostalgia than to take a historically accurate trip down memory lane. I edit. I edit out the bad parts, and I glorify the good, and that is a lot of what Southern Rock did too. Southern Rock, this otherworldly stew, tapped into something that was not just in the South. It was about the South in many ways, but there were a lot of white folks from rural areas of Nebraska, New York, Wyoming, Montana, Arizona, wherever, whoever identified with the things that Southern Rockers were singing about. They tended to sing about a longing for how things used to be. Nostalgia. Of course, if you were white, how things used to be had a bit of a different meaning than if you were African American. Even if the Southern Rockers, like Black Oak, Arkansas, and Leonard Skinnerd, and the fans that adored them said that they were not being racist but simply honoring their heritage, you cannot separate your heritage from racism and slavery if you wave the stars and bars around on the stage or even attach it to your guitar. You can't have it both ways. So you cannot get too upset if people ask questions or even make assumptions. I said that these rock bands tapped into something. Racism? For some folks, yes. But we need to be careful when painting in broad strokes. That argument ends with the Allman Brothers, who not only avoided political messages in their music, they had an African-American drummer at a time when having a racially integrated band was most definitely not the norm, especially in the South. Long-haired men who dared to climb on a stage and stand behind the chicken wire that was there to protect bands from flying beer bottles and whiskey bottles had to have something to say if they were not going to get their asses kicked. Honestly, Dwayne Allman and a guitar should have been enough on their own. Dwayne Allman is the greatest rock and roll guitar player that ever lived, period. Mark Kemp wrote that as a kid growing up in the post-Civil Rights Act South, Southern Rock, and especially the Allman Brothers, helped him make some sense out of the confusion of the changing, changing South. The way he described it as a young white kid whose family tossed around the N-word with some regularity, he was aware that the racial history of the South was ugly, but he was conflicted because he still loved the South. The diversity of the bluesy, countryish rock of the almonds exemplified the jumble of emotions that was the South in the early 70s. But for a young guy like Kemp, it gave him something to be proud of, too. I suspect that there were and are many people like Mark Kemp. The same year that the band recorded The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, the Almond Brothers released their first studio album called The Almond Brothers Band and... Nobody cared. Well, Lester Bangs wrote a nice review for Rolling Stone. Go watch Almost Famous if you don't know who Lester Bangs is. But really, nobody else cared. Was it a bad, bad album? No, not really. No, not at all, actually. Not a bad album. Whipping Post is on that album, but it's the studio version, not the live version, that became so famous. But they weren't signed by a major label. They insisted on staying in Georgia and could not get on the radio. On the album Gatefold, 
There's a photo of the band standing in a stream, naked. Radio did not know what to do with these long-haired white guys who played a kind of bluesy rock and roll. And oh, by the way, remember that in the South, in the late 60s and early 70s, long hair on a man was considered to be, quote, sissy. You didn't do it unless you knew how to protect yourself. The next studio album came out in 1970. Nobody really paid attention to that. And by 1971, the band releases live at Fillmore East. And now people pay attention. I guess by people, I mean people who were not already going to see the Allman Brothers live. Because if you did that, you already knew. Let's listen to a little bit of Whipping Post live. version of that song whipping post is five minutes the live version is 22 i've been able to run errands and just put the live version on my car stereo and not make it all the way through the song can you imagine a radio station playing that in its entirety today they would probably have to break in the middle for some lawyer commercials or something like that the new fm stations of the early 1970s did play the whole thing especially the late night djs Whipping Post, that's from uh, Live at Fillmore East, recorded in 1970, released in 1971. That's a song of betrayal. I've been run down. I've been lied to. It's a song of pain and suffering, like any good blues song should be. Any good southern rock song has a touch of the blues in it. The Allman Brothers did not write songs that were overtly political, although members of the band, especially Greg, rather famously campaigned for Jimmy Carter, when he was elected president in 1976. In fact, Jimmy Carter went to Greg Allman's funeral when Greg died of cancer in 2017. The Allmans did use the Confederate flag on a souvenir program in 1974 and maybe some other merchandise, but other than that, they shied away 
from using that flag. What about the Confederate flag? All right, it's time for my history teacher hat to come on. The same debate about the Confederate flag existed in the 1970s as exists today. It began to make its comeback around 1950, and according to the Daughters of the Confederacy, they were getting requests for the flag from men serving in Korea, and those flags were sent to them. The white Southerners who argued that the flag represented heritage, not hate, were mad that the KKK was using the flag because the white Southerners believed that it changed the meaning of the flag. I guess it depends on what you thought the flag meant in the first place. On the most factual and practical level, it cannot be debated that the Confederacy wanted to destroy the United States. The secession ordinances filed by the states that would make up the Confederacy consistently cited the election of Abraham Lincoln and or anger at the federal government for not doing more to protect slavery as the reasons for leaving the United States. These are facts. Go read the cornerstone speech by the vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens, if you are not clear on what the cornerstone of the Confederate government was. The short answer is the Confederacy believed that the white race was superior to African Americans. But you can go read that for yourself if you want more. Where the issue gets muddy is what it means when someone not living in the Civil War era, what they mean when they use the Confederate flag in a way that honors the flag or the Confederacy. We can never lose sight of the fact that this is not black Southerners who are arguing that this flag is about heritage. To someone not raised in the South, it seems rather inconceivable that white Southerners of the 60s, 70s, and beyond do not make this rather simple connection. It is conceivable, though, if you realize that history is taught differently in different parts of the South, in different parts of America. I've had this confirmed to me by history teacher colleagues from the South. If you are taught to be sympathetic to the Confederacy, then it's easy to see how you just ignore the slavery part of the equation if you're white. There are also those white people who fully recognize that it upsets the so-called elites or liberals when they use the flag, and that's why they do it. It's a big fuck you to the elites. Many Southern rock bands used the Confederate flag. Black Oak, Arkansas's lead guitar player, Stanley Knight, had a large Confederate flag on his guitar, and the band covered the drum risers with four or five flags. Molly Hatchett used it. Most famously, Leonard Skinner prominently displayed the flag on album covers, T-shirts, hats, mugs, and of course, on stage. The way Gary Rossington, who was one of the band's founders, tells it, The flag was more symbolic of Southern pride and to some extent the rebel factor. The Confederates were rebels, and that is what many of the Southern rock bands and their fans liked. Southern rock bands played into the stereotypes of the Southern white male as this impoverished and misunderstood rebel. In fact, glorifying being poor and drinking and fighting was a staple of some of the bands. Black Oak, Arkansas not only glorified the image of the rebellious Hellraiser, the band lived it. Two of the founding members stole PA equipment from their high school because they wanted equipment for the band, and they went on a little crime spree after that that would have landed them in prison if they had not been minors. At any rate, I do believe that the bands that claimed that using the Confederate flag 
was an attempt to reclaim the identity of the South as a distinct region meant it. Remember, the 70s were a time when the South South was losing that regional distinction. But again, this is almost exclusively a white person's claim, and Gary Rossington also said many years later that he could see how the flag is a visual reminder of the Civil War and that it is a painful reminder for some people. It's a well-told story covered in every book, article, and documentary that mentions Sweet Home Alabama that Ronnie Van Zant was responding to Neil Young's Southern Man. Young calls out the South for its racism, its history of slavery, and he says, hey, don't forget about your Bible or your good book. This song was upsetting to many white Southerners. The reasons for them being upset tended to center on this uh, not-all-white-people defense and that the white South was being painted in rather broad strokes. Ronnie writes a response to this, Ronnie Van Zandt. It was a bit defensive. Watergate does not bother me. Does your conscience bother you? As in, shit is happening all over. And Why are you just blaming the South? Ronnie was, of course, correct that racism and bad behavior were not the exclusive domain of the South and other parts of the country were being just a little more sneaky about it. The parts of the song that are mysterious to me uh, are in the addition of what the band says was boo, boo, boo. They said it was a boo to George Wallace. Are they booing George Wallace? How many people thought still do that it was ooh, ooh, ooh? And the we all did what we could do? Well, what did you do? Did you try to vote him out? We won't ever know because the real answer died with Ronnie Van Zant in 1977. Here's a bit of Sweet Home Alabama.
Sweet Home Alabama. That's a top 10 hit for Leonard Skinner in the summer of 1974, a very tumultuous summer that ended with President Richard Nixon resigning and being whisked away from the White House by Marine One. We know that Ronnie was a fan of George Wallace, so that makes it hard to believe that this was an anti-George Wallace song. He did say that he knew he would get some heat for the lyrics, so if it was intended to be anti-Wallace, I'm not sure what heat he's talking about. As for Neil Young, many years later in 2012, he wrote in his biography that he deserved to be called out for Southern Man. He wrote, I didn't like my words when I wrote them. They are accusatory and condescending. To Mary Clayton, the meaning of Sweet Home Alabama is very clear. You may not know Mary by name, but you have probably heard Mary sing. She's one of the greatest backup singers in American music history. It would take a separate podcast to examine all of Mary's accomplishments, but for now, I will just mention Gimme Shelter. Mary rather famously had never heard of the Rolling Stones when she was called in the middle of the night in 1969 to add the haunting backdrop to that song, Gimme Shelter. She recorded it in her pajamas, no less. She tells this story in the documentary 20 Feet from Stardom, which you must see if you have not. Go find it streaming somewhere, 20 Feet from Stardom. Mary, an African-American woman and native of New Orleans, was asked to sing backup on Sweet Home Alabama. Her first reaction was, no, no way am I going to sing about anything happening in Alabama, because to Mary, Alabama was the place where four young black girls were blown up at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham in 1963. Alabama was Bull Connor and fire hoses and police dogs turned on civil rights activists and George Wallace's inaugural inaugural address in January 1963. When he was inaugurated as governor in January 1963, he said this, Today I have stood where once Jefferson Davis stood and took an oath to my people. It's very appropriate then that from this cradle of the Confederacy, this very heart of the great Anglo-Saxon Southland, that today we sound the drum for freedom as have our generations of forebearers before us done. Time and time again through history, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. So how is Mary Clayton supposed to sing on a song that name checks this? Well, she did it because her husband urged her to, but she was very clear on the song's meaning to her and why she would contribute. She did it to claim her own experience as an African-American woman in the South. We got your sweet home Alabama right here, is her exact quote. One thing that white people are still not doing very well is honoring the right for African-Americans in this country to be credible witnesses to their own experiences. And if there was anything more powerful than Mary saying no to singing on this record, it was saying yes and bringing her own truth to it. Oh, by the way, Mary Clayton also covered Southern Man. Here's a bit of that. Man, you better 
Mary Clayton uh, in, on her debut solo album, 1971, with her cover of Neil Young's Southern Man. You can't deny uh, it takes on different meaning when you hear it from her perspective. Many fans of 70s Southern Rock say that after the plane crash that killed Ronnie Van Zant and two other members of Leonard Skinnerd, that Southern Rock lost its edge. 1977 was the end of Southern Rock, they say. 38 Special was Donnie Van Zandt's band, and Donnie was Ronnie's brother. 38 Special released two albums in 1977, and nobody paid any attention, and by nobody, I mean radio stations. And then they put out an album in 1978, and nobody paid attention. And then in 1979, they put out Rocking Into the Night. The title track became a minor success. It almost made it into the top 40. Then came Wild-Eyed Southern Boys in 1981, and Hold On Loosely made it to number three. I actually cannot believe it was only number three because it seemed like it was on the radio every hour. 38 Special changed its sound when Don Barnes began writing songs for them, and the songs were designed to get on the radio and this new thing that debuted in 1981, MTV. It worked, but the band that really made MTV work for them was this new kind of little more homogenized version of Southern Rock from ZZ Top. Donnie said something interesting in 1986, which was the height of the arena rock uh, hair band era of rock music. He said that he thought the term Southern Rock had become passe and that 38 Special did not want to be associated with it anymore. We feel like we have more to offer than just some of the stereotypical Southern rock bands that were singing about cowboys, whiskey, alligators, and bad women. Alligators? What is Donnie talking about? Oh, he's talking about Gator Country by Molly Hatchett. I've been to Alabama. People ain't a whole lot to see. Skinnerd says it's a real sweet home, but it ain't nothing to me. Charlie Daniels will tell you the good Lord lives in Tennessee, but I'm going back to gator country where the wine and the women are free. Old Richard Betts will tell you, Lord, he was born a rambling man. Well, he can ramble back to Georgia, but I won't give a damn. Elvin Bishop outstrutting his stuff with little Miss Slick Titty Boom, but I'm going back to gator country to get me some elbow room.
Gator Country. They released that in 1978. They're poking a bit of fun at their fellow Southern rockers. Back to 38 Special. Don Barnes said, Our first two albums failed miserably, and we started trying any kind of thing we could to win at this. So one of the things that they tried was to borrow a little something from the cars. Does this sound familiar? Yep, I bet that does sound familiar to a lot of you. That's the opening riff of Just What I Needed by The Cars in 1978. Well, 38 Special. They're going to borrow that. Listen closely. from 38 Special's Wild-Eyed Southern Boys album. Uh, They started recording that in 1979, finally released it in 1981 with a little assist from the Cars, and they really did also benefit from MTV and getting their videos in regular rotation. I think that Hold On Loosely sounds a lot more like arena rock than Southern rock, which seems to be what 38 Special thought they needed to do to sell more records, and they may have been right in 1981. The heyday of Southern Rock, which was roughly from 1970 to 1977, produced some really great music. There's nothing wrong at all with simply enjoying the music for the sake of the music. I'm pretty sure that the bands making this music would be fine with that. However, if we put that music into historical context with what was happening in the country and specifically in the southern part of the United States at that time, we can see another layer to the depth of what these bands were creating. The bands tapped into nostalgia, for better or worse. They glorified being a rebel, and they made it cool to be Southern. That is all for this episode of For the Record, the 70s. If you like what you hear, hey, tell somebody or leave a favorable review on your podcast app. All of my sources are on ftr70.com. You can become a patron for $1 a month by clicking on any Patreon link on ftr70.com. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.